Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Smith's. I have a lot of students here with me in the room. Some are verbal, some are not, apparently. Um, Going to go around and do some introductions. We have two primary uh, people on the podcast today. Uh, Jared, I think you're in the support role today. Do you want to introduce yourselves? yourself? Yeah, I'm Jared Brooks. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm here, uh, you know, first podcast. So I'm excited. And I think you're hoping to do another podcast potentially with Dr. Rayner, potentially with me. Um, and we'll do a deeper dive when you introduce yourself then. Just in case that doesn't happen, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Thoughts about uh, going into psychiatry, pediatrics, general medicine, surgery. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my front runner uh, specialty is definitely psychiatry. It's something I wanted to do before coming to med school. Uh, kind of competing specialty would be internal medicine. It just depends on uh, if I like the hospital, but I do like the analytical nature of it. Both of them have a lot of analytical nature. I think those are great choices. I think they're all great choices, though. So, uh, Weston, you developed the topic. Why don't you introduce yourself and, intro and uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to this topic. Okay, my name is Weston. I am a fourth year applying to psychiatry residency, submitting next week. Very excited. Um, I grew up here in Utah, got my undergrad degree in public health, um, and landed on psychiatry during third year, actually. So I came in wanting to do ophthalmology and switched to psychiatry after doing my rotation. Um, and today we are talking about psilocybin and what that is because I didn't know what it is. I w I'm a good Utah boy who, and I don't know anything about much, but some of my patients, as I talk to them, I'm like, hey, you know, you doing any recreational drugs? They're like, oh yeah, I microdose. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. What are you microdosing? Uh, and they're microdosing mushrooms a lot of the time. So that's kind of how we got on this topic. I was just curious and wanted to educate myself on what my patients were doing. I, I don't even know what to say about that other than maybe we should start the podcast. <laughs> so Jared, you... Um, you did like 70 pages of high yield information. I'm going to go through that just a little bit. All right. So you have comments about the 5-HT2A receptor. Did you find questions on the shelf exam that actually spoke to this? Uh, my review, I, I was going through um, question banks and I couldn't find anything that granular uh, on it, or, nor in uh, first aid for the shelf. All right. Then we're going to come back to that then. The second part of this, you have some toxicity associated with uh, a couple of these substances. I think one of the areas that many of my students get tripped up on are emergency room uh, presentations in psychiatry on the shelf exam. I wouldn't be surprised if there are a couple of questions about LSD toxicity that you found on the shelf prep. Were there any of those? Yeah, um, for they didn't really go over a lot of hallucinogens, so definitely more focus on opiate stimulants alcohol, um, but uh, it is in first aid, uh, so I might not have just gotten to those questions. All right, I, and I don't know that there are a lot of those. Um, it looks like the the key part of an LSD intoxication would be altered perceptual state, right? I think you have a couple of other notes here. Do you want to expand on that just a little bit? 
Yeah, so kind of the primary, like I said, altered uh, perceptual state. Uh, that's kind of talking about hallucinations, uh, hallucinations distortions, illusions. Uh, it's kind of the primary um, kind of mechanism of what you'll see. Uh, some people can be super anxious depending on, they call it a quote-unquote bad trip. And so they can kind of have negative, um, kind of those negative visual and emotional, and then they can actually even re-experience those after the fact. I think there's something, there used to be something called perpetual, persisting perpetual hallucination disorder or something along those lines. Is that still around, do you know? Uh, not to my knowledge. All right, we may figure that out eventually. And then um, you also have some high yield uh, on the uh, on major depressive disorder here, I think. This is something that does show up on, on the shelf exam. Do you wanna watch walk us through the diagnosis? And then a little bit of information about the specifier. So I'm gonna jump you down a little bit, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so kind of the DSM-5 criteria is you have to have at least one major depressive episode and no history of mania or hypomania. And uh, um, like many diagnoses, you can't have it attributed to another medical condition or any substances. And also has to have uh, significant impairment or distress. Um, and for the criteria, there's the mnemonic SIG ECAPS. Um, and you need five or more uh, for two weeks for the diagnosis. And one of them has to be either anhedonia or a depressive mood. Uh, the Siggy Caps, uh, S for sleep disturbance, yeah, uh, interest is decreased, guilt or worthlessness, energy decrease, concentration impairment, appetite changes, typically hypophagia. Uh, then you also have psychomotor agitation or retardation, and then also suicidal ideations. And just a reminder, uh, with sleep and appetite, those can both go up or down, right? Correct. Uh, and then specifiers, we haven't talked about this a lot, and I don't know how often the specifiers show up in the shelf exam. So you have the first one listed there, listed there as melancholic. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so it's 25-30% of patients will have this melancholic specifier, which is uh, kind of characterized by the anhedonia, the guilt, and anorexia. Um, it's kind of the what I typically think of with MDD. Okay, and then go ahead and keep going through some of the specifiers you have there, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, of course, then you have atypical. Uh, so, as uh, Dr. Brown, you said earlier, you have uh, sleep is usually, uh, you can go up or down. So typically you'd have uh, decreased sleep, but in atypical you'll have actually have hypersomnia. And uh, instead of the hypophagia, you actually get hyperphagia in atypical. And then you also see other things like mood reactivity, where they can get uh, really happy even, even for a brief moment, even in a depressive episode. And then also this kind of phenomenon of like leaden paralysis, where just arms, limbs are very heavy. And then also this uh, thing called hypersensitivity to interpersonal rejection. Uh, then you get your mix, which you kind of have some of those uh, manic or hypomanic uh, features that are uh, during the uh, episode. However. Um, like a lot of these, you can't meet the criteria of another DSM. Uh, so if you actually met the criteria, I don't believe you could actually say it's a mixed specifier. Uh, but definitely correct me if I'm wrong. Um, then you get your catatonia, which is characterized by cataplexy, like this immobility uh, with like a stimulus. You have this like thing of purposeless motor activity, um, extreme negativism or mutism. And the third I had to look it up is the echolalia. It's like meanness repeating words spoken by somebody else, like if you're just repeating whatever you said without any kind of meaning behind it. Uh, then you have psychotic features that concur up to up to 53% uh, of these uh, older uh, patients that are hospitalized with MDD. And then you can kind of see that with the presence of delusions and hallucinations. And there's another specifier called anxious distress, which is the term was like keyed up or like kind of tense and restless. 
feel like they're losing control and they're just worried that something really bad's gonna happen or is happening. Then you have your uh, fairy pollen uh, onset, which is usually an MDD episode, uh, meaning the criteria uh, within four weeks after delivery or during pregnancy. Did that change? Is that the one we talked about? We did talk about that a couple weeks ago. And I think that's now different, maybe, yeah, right? Because it can last up to a year after delivery. Yeah, I there, think there's some notes on on uh, the on, on King deck of up to 12 weeks or 12 months. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I think so for the purpose of the shelf, you're correct. Mm. So just be tracking that. Yeah, be be aware of both of those numbers. Apparently. Okay. okay. And then the last one was uh, seasonal. Uh, sometimes referred to as seasonal affective disorder which is uh, usually related to the different times of year. Uh, kind of a little extra info on this is that this is actually responsive to a thing called light therapy, which is bright lights, can help with that particular specifier. I liked a couple of other things you did here, and j just as a quick reminder for slime treatment, I'm gonna jump in here, CBT, SSRIs, SNRIs, right? Mm -hmm. And or, uh, yeah, sorry, not and or, SSRIs and, S and SNRIs, but CBT versus uh, pharmacology. Second line, you'd get into the other antidepressants. Uh, more often, bupropion, I would suspect, or mirtazapine, but uh, trazodone, trazodone or a TCA, monoamine oxidase inhibitor, also very reasonable. You can augment, you have listed here antipsychotic medications, but we also sometimes see uh, bupropion added to an SSRI or an SNRI. Sometimes you'll see trazodone added to those as well, or mirtazapine in theory because those have somewhat different mechanisms or action, of action than the SSRI. Um, I like uh, this other part here too, treatment-resistant depression, ketamine, uh, I think S-ketamine has the indication for depression with suicidality. Does it now have the indication in treatment-resistant depression? Um, to my knowledge, there, there is some use of it. Um, I think there's a spravata that I think can be used, but I think it's... Um, has been shown not to be as effective as the IV uh, ketamine, just uh, probably due to the absorption and bioavailability. I know that we had a couple of podcasts on ketamine, and we're lo we looked at that and wondered, we speculated that the IV treatments that were being given in the emergency room seemed to have a little more kick than the nasal S-ketamine, which is the enantiomer. Um, we're going to also talk about psilocybin, because I th psilocybin, because I think that's the correct way to say it. I've always said psilocybin, but I think it's psilocybin. Um, I think we're going to talk about some studies that looked at that as well, right? Yes, we are. Um, the differential diagnosis, I think, is worth pointing out here as well on depression. Do you want to mention that as well? Yeah, so um, I have a problem with uh, questions that I've seen so far on with MDD is that you have things that look very much like MDD, but are just slightly different, and so things to consider is, um, it used to be called dysthymia, but now it's called persistent depressive disorder. And so you actually see this chronic depressed mood. Uh, so they, they seem like they are depressed, but they're actually not quite meeting those uh, five of the Siggy cats, but like, or two or so. Uh, and then they'll have that kind of persistent for like two years. And so if you see that, there's not quite the five uh, Siggy caps, but they have that depressed mood, and it's been for like two years, then you would start thinking that uh, dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder. Then you have this, uh, another thing that can happen is like adjustment disorder with depressed mood. And so kind of a key thing is that they're fine and then something really stressful happens or something you know in their life kind of turns them upside down and then now they're depressed and that event occurred within three months. And then another thing I've seen a lot is that 
if the event is no longer a problem, they need to get better within six months. Otherwise, you have to start looking somewhere else for a different diagnosis. And the last one is just, I've seen uh, kind of bereavement or that normal stress response. And so I think the thing that's tripped me up a lot is that, you know, I can see a question, I think, well, that would, that would definitely explain the depression, but if they still meet those five SIGI caps, then it's still considered MDD. Okay. Good. You've got some other things that are really great here, like the medical causes of a depressive episode. I suspect those show up in the shelf exam and also substance-induced causes of depressive episodes. I'm guessing those show up as well. I'm going to skip over those because we're already about 12 minutes into the podcast with the high-yield part. So um, we'll come back, I think, to that uh, 5-HT2 receptor in a little bit. Weston, and I don't know why, I still almost call you Brandon. <laughs> Have I done that yet today? Uh, not today, but yesterday. I did once Monday. at least <laughs> yesterday. I don't think you corrected me yesterday either. Um, no, I generally just ask you who Brandon is. Usually you do, but I don't think you did that time. <laughs> I don't know what is going on with that. Uh, Weston, tell me a little bit about, um, kind of introduce me to psilocybin. Where did it come from? How did we get to where we're at? What do the studies look like now? And and kind of give us a sort sort of a welcome to the substance. I know we've done this before to some extent with other medications or with other uh, hallucinogens, which is a very broad group. Mm-hmm. But we're going to focus in on psilocybin only in this uh, in this podcast. So kind of get me to kind of this historical like a story. Okay, bring me to the present day. In the beginning, there was psilocybin. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's been around for a long time. There's evidence that it's been used for you know thousands of years, um, more so like medicinally and like spiritually throughout different cultures. Um, we really see a big kind of uptick and gains popularity in like the 60s, 70s with kind of that counterculture movement that we see not only in the United States, but across the world. Um, a lot of people taking not only psilocybin, but other psychedelic drugs. Um, and that led to what uh, Jared said earlier is kind of those quote, bad trips that gained a lot of news coverage, you know, people going into psychosis because of these herbs or different medicines and substances that people are using. So I think there were also some research issues going on. I think yes. Timothy Leary got in trouble uh, or, or maybe the way he went about the research raised questions. I think at the same time, President Nixon had the war on drugs, and there was a response to the counterculture that, I I mean, there were a lot of things going on. Yeah, it's got a a deep history with a lot of different moving parts, as with everything. But no, yeah, some of the studies, and I I did air quotes and studies because only until recently there haven't really been guidelines and like standard procedures and dosages on things. So... You know, back in the 1960s, there was something called the Good Friday Experiment, and groups of volunteers were just asked to take psilocybin, and they just watched them. And there's no, couldn't find any, you know, how much did they give them, what did they give them, was it in an edible, what kind of form was it in, but uh, one of the patients is quoted, and it's kind of famous for them saying it, um, it was the most powerful cosmic homecoming they have ever experienced. Now this is Pinky, right? P-A-H-N-K-E, I think, that did these uh, studies. 
And I think Pinky is one of yes. Timothy Leary's um, grad students. Yes. Okay. Um, and then I think Leary is that the one? That's the Canada one, right? No, I think that's oh, okay. I think that's Hoffer. Is that right? Ho- Hoffman, yes, Hoffer? that is Hoffer. So Hoffer. I'm getting all of my. Yeah. Yeah, because I think we talked about Hoffer before a little bit in one of the other podcasts. If if we have the right person, he was the uh, physician that was going around Western Canada giving people hallucinogens, maybe various types, maybe yeah. more LSD. Hard for me to kind of sort that out. Yeah. And then um, perhaps having these N of one repeatedly kinds of good outcomes that are kind of known about. Mm-hmm. So so I want to I, I want to go to um, the Tatum article a little bit to set more context if I can. Uh, I thought that the way Tatum went about describing sort of this history is also fascinating. So I mean step aside from the the first journal article which was 1799 right this (laughs) apparently some uh, well-meaning father, is that the way uh, that was quoted? I believe so, yeah. <laughs> Brought home mushrooms for his family to eat and... Uh, and they had a good time. Something strange happened, yeah. <laughs> uh, something happened on the way to dinner. Uh, so set that aside for a minute. Okay. And, and we talk about these phases. It, the the Tatum article, I think, w- was probably translated from, from uh, German, German yeah. to English. And, and I felt like... Um, there was a little bit lost in the translation. It took me kind of a minute to wrap my head around this. But the, 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 the way they talked about it was paradigms of thinking of psilocybin, or psilocybin. I, I saw it not just as paradigmatic thinking, but a historical perspective, right? How we've had these historical paradigms thinking about psilocybin. So first of all, there's this uh, shamanic. Yes. Tell me about the shamanic paradigm. If I'm not I, I twisting you around too no, much, no, that's that's good. Uh, the shamanic paradigm—that's kind of what I mentioned earlier about like you have these local spiritual, maybe even like tribal leaders who have this connection with deity, and they use substances like psilocybin to experience, you know, really intense religious spiritual experiences, and also provide those experiences to others kind of guiding them along and you'll hear that um vocabulary with people now you know oh you're going to try this i will be your shaman i will guide you through this experience it feels a lot to me like the shamanic paradigm is kind of being relived with the current approach Right, the the idea of the unitedness or the social and religious rituals. It, it the, we're not as much ritualistic as we were. However, there's this strong emotional, cognitive, and therapeutic response that's being either happening or hoped for. Mm-hmm. Right, and and it's maybe not as much counterculture as as the shamanic. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, but but bits and pieces of this paradigm have, have popped up in other kind of um, historical timelines, even For though sure. this is like way back, right? Yeah. Now, we go from that to the psychomimetic paradigm. And, and uh, Tatum and the group that wrote this article said essentially, um, Hefter, not Hoffer, right, but Heft, Hefter, isolated mescaline, which is one of the substances that was creating hallucinogens. 
I'm going to take a pause here for just a second and talk about one thing very briefly. And, and maybe you can help me out with this. Hallucinogens are a great big bag of things. And they're all very different. They are. Um, and we'll kind of get into this with Jared's talk on like the specific receptor. But psilocybin um, falls into like the serotonergic group. Um, and those really only act on serotonin. They'll have some indirect effects on different receptors, mainly dopamine. Um, but you have other things like MDMA that's going to act on serotonin. It's also going to act on norepinephrine and dopamine. So you're getting more receptor activity with other drugs compared to psilocybin. Or even different profiles of receptor activity. Yes. Okay. So, so even though I'm going to mention here in this psychomimetic um, kind of paradigm or historical sense of the psilocybin, Hefter isolated mescaline, not psilocybin right but and he did this from peyote and now we have molecules coming out of this shamanic research specific molecules and at least in mescaline's case um, it became a model for psychosis right because some people mm -hmm. and maybe more with mescaline than with other substances became acutely psychotic, yeah. hallucinatorily psychotic, generally speaking, if I understand correctly. Yeah. And then uh, by the 1940s, Hoffman, not Hefter, and not Hoffer, <laughs> <laughs> but Hoffman uh, makes LSD. Yes. By 1958, Hoffman has isolated psilocybin from, quote, Mexican magic mushrooms end quote and Sandoz is selling psilocybin correct but I don't know if they're selling it as a psychomimetic as part of this model of psychosis or not right and so I think at this time the idea is this is all bad all the time Right, still in the psychomimetic stage. Mm -hmm. And then counterculture comes along, and we have what was described as the psycholytic paradigm. Talk to me about that. Um, the psycholytic paradigm, basically people using it to achieve catharsis is one of the words I've seen. Um, or, you know, maybe that feeling of, quote, getting high, unquote. So um, we see kind of like the more recreational use of this. So we've shifted from shamanic to trying to use it to understand psychosis to now people are just using it recreationally. I also saw it um, a little bit differently than just the recreation experience, although that's happening really during the and I think this is a problem with the paper, right? Because I think during the time of the recreation use, this psycholytic paradigm, I mean, I mean it's, it's happening at the same mm -hmm. time, right? But the psycholytic paradigm is, I do um, psychoanalytic psychotherapy. This is Freudian therapy. And resistance keeps you from making those changes that will allow you to have a more enjoyable life. And so if I can break down those defenses that are preventing that uh, breakthrough in therapy, then you can start living your life more uh, more enjoyably, more along the lines of what are your terms, right? And so this psycholytic paradigm, the idea is to 
break down those defenses, remove that. And I think we're going to talk about that even more when we talk about some of the scales that measure what happens during mm-hmm. an event, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we go from that, and, and this is like, like you said at the time, where misuse or, or use outside of the realm of practice, yeah. there's, there's still this history of the psycho uh, mimetic beliefs where it causes psychosis. It clearly doesn't in all people. In many people, it has a different reaction rate. And and we go from that to outlawed for a very long time. Yep. And yet there are groups hanging out there that really want this stuff <laughs> to be used, right? A couple of uh, editorials talk about how, because of personal experience, this this is, everybody needs this. This is the bee's knees. Right. <laughs> and so we finally get back to this with the psychedelic paradigm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this is in part reaching back to the Good Friday experiment, in part it pulls from the shamanic experience of of mystical experiences and societal unity and filling uh, together with nature. The the quote you had, I think, is a good example of that, right? Yeah. And and so I I think the way of thinking about this substance has changed quite a bit over time, and it, it seems like maybe from my perspective, be interested in your thoughts, it seems like it, it's sort of like the story of the big elephant, right? Everybody looks at it and they see one part of it. I mean, it's a, it's a substance that has a history of use. It seems to, for some people, bring t- this social awareness together. Mm-hmm. For other people, there seems to be psychosis. For some people, it just causes headaches maybe, right? <laughs> um, and, and it's it's the same molecule. It's just that the humans are different, and we have different experiences. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's. I think the main issue across the board of psychedelic research is people are responding to this differently. I'd say more differently than you know we give someone an SSRI. We can kind of predict what's going to happen if we give someone Zoloft or Lexapro. If I give someone a psychedelic. I don't know for certain what's going to happen, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's been, you know, under prohibition for so long is, yes, it could lead to this breakdown of barriers and allow for healing. It can create a spiritual experience, increase social connectedness. It could also perpetuate psychosis in someone, and I think that possibility has scared us, and I say us as like medical research, for a long time. I think there's there's something interesting you said um, that we can predict SSRIs. I don't know that that's entirely true because we still have patients who inexplicably develop suicidal ideation. Oh, yeah. We have patients who become manic with these substances. So maybe it's actually to say that with experience, we hopefully get better at prescribing these, recognizing the pitfalls, responding, excuse me, quickly when there is a pitfall or, or a... Um, an unhoped for therapeutic outcome, right? Yeah, and I think too, with that, we've done so much research on SSRIs that we do have a lot of data. Yes, there's still some unpredictability there, but we have a lot of data comparatively to psychedelics and like psilocybin. We're still working on a lot of that research. The studies now, we talked about this a little bit in the previous podcast, the studies now have um, a couple of, to, to, to your point about Thousands of studies were done, but dosing, the the how to avoid a bad trip, all of those things, not a lot of data on that, right? Correct, yeah. So, so the current studies have um, 
a couple of questions they're asking. I, I, if I recall correctly, in the last podcast, we talked about micro versus macro dosing, and we talked about how there is a setup for the therapy. Um, remind us a little bit more about micro and macro dosing, and then I think the, the setup that we talked about before has uh, grown. I think there's something about set and setting. Talk to me about those things, if you would. Yeah, so microdosing, you know, that's the term I've heard patients use, and I was curious about. Microdosing is taking a very small amount to get some of the benefits without really wanting to get high. So when I've asked patients in the past, okay, why do you microdose mushrooms? Oh, it makes me more creative. I'm able to concentrate better. Um, you know, I feel more social. They're getting some of those positive benefits without necessarily getting, quote, high where they're not really functional or they're having those hallucinations. Whereas macrodosing, you know, you're taking a lot more of the drug, oftentimes with the intent of getting high and experiencing those more... Um, the hallucinations yeah. or something along those lines. And so, you know, specifically with psilocybin, when people microdose, they're taking maybe 10 milligrams to 50 milligrams of what I found is dried mushroom material. And I think that kind of, you know, speaks to what you're talking about. I don't really know the composition of what this dried mushroom material is. Is that 10 milligrams of pure psilocybin? Is it one milligram mixed with a bunch of other things? We don't know. And that's kind of hard. But when people macrodose, they're taking two to six grams. So significantly more dried mushroom material. It, now, just to clarify, we're going to talk about, uh, I think, Dr. Raison. Uh, R-A-I-S-O-N. Yes. Mm -hmm. I believe he did a study, and I don't think these were mush mushrooms they were using. This is purified psilocybin. Yes, right? correct. And then the other thing I came across, did you see the, the comment about the um, emetogenesis chitin? I did not see that. So apparently one of the things that keeps most people from overdosing on mushrooms is that some of the material in the, in the mushrooms makes people vomit. And so you get at some point too sick to overdose on psilocybin. So mushrooms may have this built-in mechanism to avoid what might be overdose. And then it would come down to some of the pharmacokinetics, whether somebody had the, the negative or the positive experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, did you want me to talk about set and setting right now as well? Yes, okay. please. Cause, and then I think we'll go to pharmacokinetics. Okay. Um, so along with, you know, controlling the composition of substances that people are taking, which makes it hard. The setting in which people are doing this is hard as well. Um, I've heard some patients are like, oh yeah, I go out to the desert once a month with my friends and we just do mushrooms. And I'm like, I'm sure that's a great time. It's also kind of scary because now I have a bunch of high people in the desert doing who knows what. They're obviously still safe. They're talking to me. But as far as from like a medicinal therapeutic standpoint, set and setting refers to both like the personal factors going on and environmental. So with set, we're thinking of things like the expectations someone may have of using the um, substance. Some of the preparations that they've done before, you know, maybe they have gone to therapy in the past already. Um, you know, do they have experience with the substance already? Have they taken it recently or how recently have they used any substances? Um, stuff like their own personal biography and context um, as well as physical and somatic conditions and stuff going on. And so set is really just all of the individual factors that this person is bringing into the psychedelic experience. 
Um, and as we move to setting, this is stuff like the environment in which it's taken, um, design of the room that it's taken in. Um, some of the studies, you know, have looked at this and have seen, yeah, when this person is taking it in a like a living room type environment where it's comfortable, they're supported, they have treatment staff there. Um, there's, you know, soft music going on that people tend to have a better experience using this compared to those let's say if I take it in a hospital room that's you know white walls very sterile bright lights that was actually found to increase negative experiences with taking psilocybin another type of so maybe it is better in the desert maybe you know if you've got <laughs> if you're in the desert with a nice comfy couch and some music let me know and I'm probably not <laughs> gonna take a couch out of the desert <laughs> and I don't plan on taking psilocybin out to the desert either. I, Probably a I, good plan. And, and, and the reason why is because I'm still not sure what it means to do that, right? And, and I think w when you're talking about getting high, the more we've di uh, gone into these substances, I think we started maybe the first substance of potential misuse we talked about was cut. And the, the way that cot and many of the metabolites of cot and how it's similar to MDMA and some of the other molecules that affect the serotonin, dopamine, and uh, norepinephrine systems, I think ever since that time I've been very intrigued by how the, the combination of receptor activity may make the molecule different in mm -hmm. terms of confusion, psychosis, um, feelings of connectedness, yeah. uh, hypertension, if I didn't say that already, headaches, mm -hmm. and so forth, right? And so um, when, when we talk about getting high, I think everybody looks for something that is a feeling they enjoy from the substance. In this case, I think when you, you talk about intoxication with psilocybin, it's probably a good trip, and I think we're going to talk about that in more detail in a few minutes and what that means. I think we, we need to, um, I think we needed to tackle one other thing first. So set is, just to make sure I understand it, is the personal characteristics. Correct. Setting is where the therapy is done. Correct. Okay, and, and then I think we're gonna talk about some of the specifics with the Raison study in just a, at some point, but probably yeah. not yet. When somebody takes psilocybin, what happens? Um, most often they're eating it. Um, they're ingesting it through most commonly mushrooms. Um, they eat it and in the gut is when psilocybin gets dephosphorylated, turns into the active substance psilocin. And um, it's typically about like 20 to 40 minutes after people ingest it is when they start feeling the effects. Psilocybin does not cross the blood brain barrier. Psilocin. Psilocin does. Yes. Psilocybin is broken down to psilocin, psilocin mm -hmm. by alkaline phosphatase. Yes. So that phosphatase molecule is moved off. And by the way, the structure of these, I had to draw them out. You, you mocked me, I think, for that. <laughs> like, oh no, he's going to make me synthesize this. No way. <laughs> Do you know how long it took me to remember how to draw a benzene ring? Because it's a benzene ring with a, a five... It's a five-member ring attached to a six-member ring, oh, right? Wow. Yeah. And and it's an indolamine, and these are indolamines are the like this is the backbone for serotonin, tryptophan, right? And and so this 
molecule looks very similar mm -hmm. to serotonin. Um, so it gets into the brain and once in the brain, and I'll just throw in a side note here because I thought this was interesting, um, psilocin is then glucuronidated and I believe excreted by the kidneys, but I never found that for sure. I wasn't, I'm not 100% on that either. Uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't find that for sure, but it, it appears that that glucuronidated state of psilocin, psilocin can also be uh, hydrolyzed and returned to the active psilocin oh, yeah. form. Um, and, and apparently they're, they're speculating that some um, people might have different genetics that creates a longer duration of psilocin, psilocin in the body and that they're trying to still sort that out, it looks like. So total side note for the geek in me that likes <laughs> CYP450 enzymes, and it isn't exactly that, <laughs> right? Um, so now take me to the activity in the brain. Yeah, and I think this is where you know research is still ongoing. We don't know for sure how it works, which I love that answer, especially in psychiatry. Like, hey, it works. We don't know how it works, but it works. But there are a few different uh, schools of thought with how it might be working. Um, psilocybin, you know, psilocin increases the release of dopamine in the ventral striatum through the 5-HT2A in humans. Um, which can also have some glutaminergic action leading to receptor activation of AMPA and NMDA and leads to activation of Dr. Randy's favorite molecule as of late, BDNF. Oh, I love BDNF. <laughs> I saw you bolded that for me. <laughs> I did bold it just for you. Um, and, you know, BDN low levels of BDNF is associated with stress, depression, and other affective disorders. And so the thought here is, Psilocin is increasing BDNF, allowing for people to feel better. Um, a different school of thought is the corticostriatothalamocortical model. It's a mouthful, but basically they're saying that the thalamus serves as a filter to kind of prevent overload from different stimuli. Um, and hallucinogens like psilocybin stimulate the layer 5 pyramidal cells via that same 5-HD2A receptor disrupting feedback loops, causing kind of sensory overload and breakdown in cognition is what they describe. So it stops the bad? Yes. Okay. Stops the bad and lead, that can kind of lead to hallucinations or that good feeling and also um, ego disturbances, which is hypothesized as being that connectedness thing. Um, and another, the last one I found is I had to read it like five times. I'm like, my, my little brain can't handle this, but... I'm reading it five times. I glanced through it before, but I'm reading it five <laughs> times now. I, I'm not sure I track this. Um, the brain entropy activity, you know, Google if you want to learn more. I'm not an expert on that. Very confusing. Basically, Aaron helped me describe it, or described it back to me, because we're like, how does this make sense? Basically, our brain is like clay. Moldable in some states, you know, if clay dries out, it's very rigid. You can't do a lot of it with it. They're saying most of the time our brain stays in this kind of more rigid stage, um, making a lot of cortical connection neurons very locally. Yes, some can you know be global, but a lot of connections are made more locally. The thought here is um, psilocybin and psilocin change that entropy state to more of kind of like a fluid, more moldable state, allowing connections to be made more globally across the brain. Is, is this a default network mode? 
Yes. Okay. I saw that in there, yes. Okay, so, so we did do a podcast on that as well, and that's interesting that you'd have to break the default uh, network mode to, to have that moment of change, because I think a lot of the therapy is surrounded around the idea that you're kind of going back to the psychoanalytic psychotherapy, there's some sort of build-up resistance to change and you break those doors down. Mm -hmm. um, there's something that you change in the brain that makes talking to somebody different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about the physiological effects? So we talked about what seems, what hypotheses about what happens in the brain. We believe it binds to this 5-HT2A receptor, mm -hmm. right? Um, be, actually, before we go there, did you want to add anything to that discussion, Jared? Uh, yeah, so I actually was reading a paper by, I think it's uh, Carhart Harris, if I'm saying that right. Um, and so they're kind of like a, I believe out of Stanford, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they're pretty prominent in kind of researching uh, that particular receptor in psilocybin um, and psilocin. And so they had talked about the, I think the paper's called like a tail of two receptors for serotonin, uh, which just caught my ear and eye. Um, but... Ear end I like that. You know, you're 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 almost talking so fast that I missed that one. Um, just relax. Yeah, so, you're um, doing great. I'm very intimidating. Jared is scared. <laughs> I, I'm facing directly across from West. It's causing me to speak fast. Um, so yeah, so the they were talking about kind of the hypotheses that even a lot of SSRIs cause a lot of that kind of toning down uh, with that 5-HT1A receptor, and that. Um, a lot of the medications like you know second generation antipsychotics will actually even block that 5-HT2A receptor and kind of causing an inverse of what these serotonergic hallucinogens are doing which are agonists at that receptor. So uh, one kind of idea was that he had talked about this passive versus active coping and and the idea was that depending on where these um, kind of receptors are going where they said a lot of the 5-HT1A receptors were kind of found in like subcortical, like the the um, hippocampus and like all that that's area there. And so while the 5-HT2A was more kind of cortical, higher level, uh, more frontal cortex. And so the idea was that maybe 5-HT1A was a little bit that kind of, I can kind of stamp down a little bit my fear response and, and kind of uh, even a little bit of that memory and just kind of get through what I'm going through now where the 5-HT2A agonist was the idea of more of like, well, I can reshape my thinking to actually move past this like, and kind of heal and learn from this. Uh, that's the, the, the kind of theory behind that. Um, and so that was kind of like where that paper was going through and trying to find out if, could you just stimulate this? But they found out that what they thought were you could just give the, the hallucinogen and it would just stimulate this. They actually found out and there's a lot of autoreceptor from the 5-HT1A that would kind of actually lower that response too. So they almost found that some of the possible benefits were even from downregulation of the 5-HT2A after the fact. And so there's just some kind of thoughts going on there. So, so it sounds like maybe even though the predominant model is 5-HT2A antagonism, or I'm sorry, agonism, yes. that it may be just as much 5-HT2A one receptor activity that is playing a role in this. Yeah, so. And I think, Weston, you had some articles that talked about binding affinities. I think there is very low binding affinity to some of the dopamine receptors. Mm -hmm. That's not uncommon for serotonergic, uh, for some of the substances we've looked at, uh, yeah. substances of misuse, to have 
a wide-ranging binding. Um, and I think the, the 1A receptor, the 5-HT2-1A receptor, may have had a higher affinity. I was looking for uh, KIs, but I couldn't I couldn't find those either in the I articles we had. I could also not find any KIs. I honestly <laughs> love KIs, because it was like, tells me what it's actually doing and where and how much, but right. I couldn't find it. I couldn't, I didn't see those either. So, so questions we still have, right? Some of the pharmacology. It was interesting because I looked at trials.gov and some of the pharmacology articles or, or studies were stopped. It looked like they were parts of um, drug studies hoping to have some sort of potential uh, future cell or future, I don't know, uh, branding product, and the money ran out maybe. That, that's yeah. kind of what I think may have happened with some of that. All right, so uh, physiological effects outside of the brain. Yeah, outside of the brain, um, a lot of studies saw some sympathetic arousal. We get dilation of pupils, increased deep tendon reflexes, um, some increase in respiratory and heart rate, as well as increase in blood pressure and temperature. Um, most of the patients didn't complain about what was happening with them physiologically. The most common undesirable effects um, were usually dose-dependent, um, but patients reported weakness, yawning, some dizziness, loss okay. of appetite. I thought I saw headaches about as much as anything. Yeah, headaches, yeah, nausea vomiting. So. And again, dose-dependent, people who are microdosing, telling you that they're doing that, probably aren't experiencing that, but you know, if you're taking a heavier dose, you're more likely to have those negative effects. What is Cargbo? Cargbo, I think is the last name of this person, who kind of did a dive into the psychological and more subjective effects of psilocybin. Um, they kind of break those down, so I'll just talk about them right now. Um, perceptual um, effects, also were dose dependent ranging from illusions, um, you know, in intensification of perceptual things, um, altered sense of time and location, and patients report, you know, like loss of linear or causal sequencing is how they worded it. So um, effects on their perception, effects on um, cognition as well. Um, increased creativity, divergent thinking, unlikely word associations or pattern making. They also saw some ego dissolution, and that's kind of that sense of connection with the universe or environment. Um, they also saw it could be modulated with things like music, so going back to that setting um, that we talked about earlier. Um, as well as the emotional effects, which I think were the most um, interesting part. Um, people were able to feel greater intensity of emotions, feel a broader range and reported an increased access to emotion as well. And so um, another study, um, Carhart-Harris looked at, okay, we're gonna give these patients psilocybin and we're gonna then send them through an fMRI and look at their amygdala. Um, and they saw, or while patients were in there, they showed patients pictures of faces with different facial expressions tied to specific emotions. So like. A smiling picture, this person is likely happy. A person with furrowed eyebrows is probably angry or curious. Um, and they saw that patients who took psilocybin had increased activity in their amygdala when looking at emotional stimuli. So the hypothesis here is, okay, these people have increased emotional responsiveness. Perhaps this is also explaining why people 
uh, are able to greater access their emotions after or during. I think it also speaks to the connectedness, right? Because I think that's, again, that's one of the things that kept coming up in the last podcast is that feeling of connectedness, and that's the Good Friday yep. experiments mm-hmm. in, in a nutshell. Yeah. I think it's also fair to say, though, that um, t- to me, one of the, uh, another, I, I keep saying this, one of the other fascinating aspects of the of the topic is that we, we really don't have scales to describe what happens. No. I mean, we do, but they're not the things we're used to, right? So, so when we think about depression, it's like, do you feel sad? Well, yeah, I know what sadness is. But how do you say to somebody, what is your perception of space and time in this moment? Right? So this is the, what is it called? The ocean... Oh, I, I forget. What I forgot that it yeah. involves the word ocean. Yes. Yes, yeah, like the uh, if you can find it, it's, it's like frantically googling. Yeah, this this ocean something or another scale. I looked at it. I was like, what in the world is this scale, right? And and so the ocean scale is the one I understand to measure in the studies. How much do the ego defenses break down? How connected do you feel? How does it change your perception of space and time? How much, I think the word is bliss and ecstasy, do you feel? How much of the mystical unity experiences are you having? And those are things that are very different than how are you sleeping at night? (laughs) How is your energy level during the day, right? These very uh, concrete markers of depression. And so when we're thinking about these studies, it seems like they're trying to capture the positive aspects of the study with the, what's the name of it? Ocean, boundless ocean? Yes, oceanic boundlessness. Oceanic boundlessness, <laughs> right. So, so that's important to think about. But then we've also talked about the bad trips, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we're measuring the goodness of the outcome, I think it's fascinating that they're also measuring the possibility or the overall badness of the outcome, right? So so we see these things that we want to measure, but we also want to avoid the breakdown of the coherent self, the catatonia, panic, alienation, right? Those are the bad trip markers. And that's the, uh, what is it, the AIA, the bad trip scale is what I have listed yes. here. And then the third one, and this seems to be kind of an afterthought. So even though there are some hallucinations that are sometimes associated with this, I don't get the sense that with psilocybin, hallucinations are generally uh, distressing, recognized as anything more than a hallucination. Maybe they're a misperception or an illusion. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, it seems like the, vision, what's the visionary restructuring scale just didn't seem to mean a lot in most of the stuff I read. Nope. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the studies that have been done, patients and it's hard because a lot of this is subjective stuff. Patients report um, increase in those positive things. No real mention of any poor outcomes, and I think that's um, partly due to the dosing that these patients are receiving. They're getting comparatively smaller doses than what would typically cause a negative outcome. So rarely happening. Rarely. And, and again, I think kind of the these are as you think about the studies, as you think about these, this substance at least, the boundless ocean, the AIA, and maybe the visual restructuring to think about the way this is being measured. 
And then interestingly enough, that's about the experience itself. But then ultimately we go back to things like the madras and so forth to look at the outcomes over time, right? Mm -hmm. And I think too, at least in one of the studies, and maybe this is a good time to talk about the the recent study is- I think so. um, I think part of the things that can prevent some of these negative experiences is going back to set and setting. Um, So, Rayson, the study was published late um, August 2023. Like the last day of August. The last day, yeah. 2023. As as late as it can get. Um, But they were giving patients either a small dose of synthetic psilocybin or 100 milligrams of niacin, which (laughs) I think is interesting. And throughout throughout time, you've seen niacin used as a placebo for psychedelic studies. But... um, you know, once patients are screened and included in this study, part of the preparation in the study is, I think the day of the study, they go through like six to eight hours of preparation work with therapists, with a psychiatrist, kind of building that, making sure their person has a good set coming into this, making sure that their expectations are good, they're not acutely distressed. Um, and that's interesting because so I'm going to back up a little bit yeah. and come to that seven hour, seven to ten hour dosing. Okay. okay, so this is eleven center study. This is a it, it was hard to recruit. They had one hundred people that they ultimately recruited, one hundred and four rather out of one thousand five hundred roughly. So yeah. one in a hundred people qualified for the study. Yeah, they had eleven centers. They ended up with a hundred people. So if you had ten people in your center, that was awesome. Yeah. Reed Robinson, Dr. Reed Robins, Robinson, who is a psychiatrist here, I believe in Utah County, was one of the people that was on the Raison study. Oh, nice. I thought that was kind that of cool. cool. Yeah. I, I think he has a research uh, arm that he does some of that with. So you had to have higher than a 28 on the Madras, which is depressed. Mm-hmm. I understood from the article that they took everybody off antidepressants. Yeah had a washout and made sure that everybody felt really, really terrible by the time of the study. I think the washout put people outside of discontinuation syndrome, right? They they had some protocols for longer half-lives and so forth. Mm -hmm. They had a pretty good exclusion criteria set, which was you can't have been psychotic or manic in the past. Mm Uh, severe or moderate substance use was su- substance use disorders were disqualified. Uh, recent use of psychedelics in the last five years or greater than ten uses over a lifetime were excluded. Anybody with suicidality or a plan in the last twelve months was yeah. excluded. And then there was something that I couldn't track very well, and they said that they excluded people who had uh, either a deep brain stimulator for depression or a VNS for depression because they use that as a marker for severe depression. But interestingly enough, I didn't see anybody that had been excluded based on the severity of the madras or the number of episodes they had of depression. Correct. So, so I wasn't sure why they excluded those two things other than I, I, I assumed you can't stop those. You don't want to turn those off, right? Yeah. Maybe that was it. But the, the internal like description wasn't immediately clear to me. Mm-hmm. And then and then after they had people that qualified, after they had them off the medications, after they got rid of the exclusions, then they would retest to make sure that people met the criteria. 
are you still sad? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and a lot of people had recovered. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, there were a lot of people that no longer met criteria. And if I understood correctly, and I again, I may not have. This is a very sophisticated paper. Um, they listed side effects of the lead up to the study. Right? So they talked about experiences that people had before for the microdosing as part of the uh, adverse outcomes. Yeah. Did, did I read I that correctly? So, yeah. yeah, so did, did that? It was, yeah, just interesting. I don't know why, but um, I, I assumed that it's because the goal is to have a very specific protocol, mm -hmm. and if you have this very specific protocol and you're following it and you're monetizing that protocol, then you want to have everything laid out in advance. So maybe it's about the protocol and not necessarily about the medication itself. I think so, yeah. Okay. I think, yeah, we're just trying to minimize anything else that could be going on. And maybe this is funded by somebody that doesn't have goals of some sort of you know, FDA-approved substance that has a specific protocol, right? And we're yeah. going to come to that in a few minutes, actually, I think. Um, so at that point, what I understood, and you understood differently, I don't know what it is. You said there was like seven or eight hours of prep time and then the dose. I understood it differently where they give the dose and then there's seven to 10 hours of therapy. Okay, I'm, maybe I'm mixing up the timeline, but I know like- um, There's a lot of prep work. There is a lot of prep work. Yeah. And there's a lot of what they call integration work after the experience, during and after the experience. So wanna make sure these patients are in a good mindset heading into this, administer the um, substance, while it's being administered, they are doing therapy, soft music playing, comfortable environment, trying to create that good setting environment. And then after those effects kind of wear off, having more therapy about, okay, what was that experience like for you? What does it mean for you? How are you going to use this experience in your life moving forward? And what does this mean for you and your depression moving forward? The FDA um, helped set up this study, mm -hmm. and they required endpoints at, they, they required a primary endpoint at 43 days? 43 days, yes. And a secondary endpoint at 14 days, so two weeks, six weeks. Yes. Or, yeah, it was one or two weeks and then six weeks, yeah. yeah. And, and interestingly enough, um, in terms of negative effects, mm -hmm. I thought they were overall pretty minimal. Um, a couple of NNHs of 50, the way I saw it, right? If you treat 50 patients with this, one headache will be caused by niacin. Yeah. Or one, one headache will be caused by, uh, sorry, psilocybin that wasn't caused by niacin. Yeah. So minimal side effects. Yeah, pretty minimal. Worth noting, because it's it dings my radar a little more, one person uh, became psychotic. Yes. And there's not good details on how durable that psychosis was, what Correct. the what the recovery time was, those kinds of things. So questions I would still want to know. Yep, it's I thought it was interesting. Like they noted that, and I'm glad that they noted that. Mm -hmm. But then also just kind of moved on. Like here it is. Well, yeah, and I, I think that goes back to the psychomimetic or uh -huh. the, the model of psychosis, kind of right. And and clearly they tried to avoid that with the uh, the inclusion criteria. Yeah. So tell me about the outcomes. What happened with the study? What did they find? Um, that a single dose of psilocybin reduced depression at both endpoints. Um, you know, they had that initial score, and a lower score means le less severe depression. And pretty much across the board, patients had a lower um, 
was it the Madras? Madras, yeah. Yeah, lower the Montgomery Asberg. Yes, I have it fully rating right scale. Yeah, um, but yeah, both on you know that early endpoint and the forty-three day endpoint, patients had um, both clinically and statistically significant reduction in depressive symptoms and functional disability. And again, that's only looking out at six weeks, but honestly, I think that's pretty good for just a one dose day long thing. I don't know. So what are the NNTs for reduction of symptoms? Did you look? I did not look. <laughs> would you like a hint? I would, or I would love for you to tell me. <laughs> uh, they're the same as SSRIs, it looks like. Oh, okay. Your NNT is about four. Okay. So, what is the recovery rate? It's, it's like 25% uh, <laughs> okay. less the 11% puts you at about, what, 16, 17, 18%, something like yeah. that, which is exactly, it puts you right in line with the NNTs yeah. for SSRIs. Yeah. So, at least at this moment, I'm not seeing anything that tells me for, I'm not, again, the, the exclusion criteria may or may not have excluded treatment-resistant depression. It seemed like it didn't initially, but then maybe with the uh, DBS-BNS yep. exclusions, maybe it did. So um, all takers, I don't know that this is better than an SSRI. I also don't know if it's better than just having somebody go through everything but the dose of, uh, the microdose of psilocybin. In other words, does the eight uh, days uh, or the eight hours of prep Intense work and then the yeah. the day-long visit the seven to ten hours with a therapist right mm -hmm. yeah it's it's interesting I mean I I personally was like oh cool like one dose versus I got to remember to take a pill every night that might be great for some people I think the other interesting thing worth noting in this study is I don't think we can apply it to everyone yet like you know with the exclusion criteria, also just looking at the demographics of participants. Um, large majority of them were Caucasian, um, middle to upper socioeconomic status. Um, more men than women, I guess, more as, men well, women I as well. More men than women as well. So great for these people that met the inclusion criteria. And great for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again. And, and I think the median age was higher as well, it was right? A, it was up in the like 40s. 49, yeah. 50, yeah. So, yeah, so this described... A very specific population. It seemed like, I mean, it's, it was broader than we're saying, right? But yeah. there, there was a skew towards older white men, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, a couple of interesting things come out of this. Uh, I, I'm not sure which direction I want to go with this. I, I, I think maybe Weston just mentioned what other studies have come out and what they suggest. I think there's a, t a tobacco cessation mm -hmm. study. Um, we're not, I don't think we need to go into the nuts and bolts of that yeah, one as much. Yeah, that's totally fine. Um, some studies looking at tobacco cessation, you know, we give a patient a microdose of psilocybin. Um, large percentage, 67% of patients were able to demonstrate abstinence at 12 months, 60% at 30 months, which I think is Awesome. Like almost three years. Yeah. And, and what was that, uh, 30 months? Um, Two and a half years? Yeah. yeah. But what, what number is oh, it? 30%? Oh, 60%. So there's nothing like that that we have, right? No. And that's a one macrodose? That's a one, I think it was a microdose. Microdose. Yeah. 
That's pretty amazing. Did they have the therapy in it as well, or um, was it just? I think it was just the kind just of just the dose. Just the dose. What about alcohol? Um, yeah, there's been a bunch of other studies. So alcohol and other substance use, um, people show abstinence. I think the alcohol studies um, are more anecdotal still. Correct. I think the tobacco study you cited is, is viewed as yeah. being a little more like the Raison study. Yeah, a little more. We got some solid numbers there um, and are able to you know, successfully track that. But um, it's interesting. It's being you know, looked at with cocaine, with um, opioid use disorder, OCD, anorexia. People are just kind of, what can we use this for? I looked on trials.gov, clinicaltrials.gov, and 150 trials are registered. Uh, roughly 10% of those have been discontinued, put on hold. A, a lot of it seems to be related to funding issues or maybe the study had adjacent or part of the same group of studies they were hoping mm -hmm. to do that had negative results, so they stopped, right? A couple of them were, how do we measure what's happening in the brain and, and maybe the original molecule that was to help look like on on imaging, like uh, PET maybe, where you um, get the binding, yeah. plus um, it looked like maybe that molecule didn't work. So uh, a lot of reasons why the studies haven't gone forward. There's definitely studies, the Raison study is now published, yep. which I think is a, a great step forward. The I think there's an anxiety study maybe that's been published that Tetum said was pretty oh, decent. Yep. Um, but generally, we're still waiting for more data to come out. There was also the, ep not epidote, episode, the episode study. Did you find anything on that? Because I think that was a treatment-resistant depression study, and I didn't end up seeing that one. I can't one. remember. I, yeah, I remember seeing it in my search. I don't remember the specifics. Yeah, the episode study for treatment-resistant depression. And, and so I think we need to, to look at that. A lot of the time we're looking at things that will help people that aren't uh, treated by SSRIs. Uh, so, so now what I want to do, I want to talk about a couple of things that um, change the direction of the podcast just a little bit. The first is that what does it look like mm -hmm. to have a clinic treating depression with psilocybin? How does that get set up? How do you make that happen? Great question. <laughs> um, I think right now we, we're really waiting on FDA approval for some of these indications. Um, a lot of it, you know, these people right now are just kind of like self-medicating, which I don't totally love because, again, I don't, I'm personally just like a control freak, and so I want to no. make sure <laughs> everything is good to go so that they can have the best experience possible. <laughs> Um, a medical student that's a control freak didn't see that thought, coming. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Um, huh. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, like we've seen ketamine clinics yeah. kind of pop up all over there now. And does a physician end up? I, I mean, I think there's an interesting area here where the the cardiovascular effects of this are not like they are maybe with other um, hallucinogens. Mm -hmm. it, it, it seems like what I read from one of the articles. Uh, one of the, uh, Rucker, who I think is uh, uh, from England, yeah. wrote a, a commentary, and he said essentially um, that his hope is that this is an option that's available and he needs to figure out kind of the, the price of it because it's probably, it may be cheaper to have what he called a psychologist 
physician or something like that. I didn't quite understand the language, but it looks like maybe a psychologist in the British healthcare system would run the seven or eight hour psilocybin treatment, right? It's an oral dose, not an IV dose, I think. And and then how that might compare to uh, 16 weeks of CBT, oh, yeah. um, which I think, it, I think CBT has a favorable NNT or a, a comparable, I should say not favorable, but a comparable NNT to SSRIs and it looks like to at least the Raison article, right? Uh, so, so he said compared to that it might be favorable, probably compared to ECT it's favorable. Uh, those are pretty expensive series yeah. of, of treatments. And so he, he made the case that depending on what the clinic look lo looks like, the cost may make it either more or less easy to uh, employ and it might be something that ends up being a, a treatment resistant depression is what I wonder. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rucker didn't say that but I, I, I wonder what it looks like right? Yeah and it'll be interesting to see I feel like I've spoken with different you know everybody has a different opinion on that but some psychiatrists are like yeah it's not a matter of if but when this gets approved for different indications and so I think it's important for us to think about as future psychiatrists or even just yeah primary care physicians looking to refer to a psychiatrist, what are the options out there for people with different mental health conditions? And, and I think this starts to um, look more like procedure psychiatry. Uh, there's some talk about interventional psychiatry, which includes the, the, uh, the, um, the RTMS and also oh, the yeah. SAINT uh, TMS, which is the RTMS on steroids, right? We did a podcast on that with uh, Dr. Chandy, yes. who was uh, not Dr. Chandy when we did it and is now at Loma Linda. Shout out to, to Dr. Chandy. Um, Rucker makes an interesting point as well. Blinding. How did they blind the Raison study? <laughs> I mean, I, I may take niacin and I kind of feel like a flush of my cheeks sometimes. Yeah. And I would imagine that's very different than... Um, than having a mystical experience? Yes. <laughs> I think so too. I think it's hard and across the board with psychedelic research. That's the hard thing. How do we effectively give a placebo so that people don't know what treatment they're in? So there's two interesting comments on this. First of all, I think it might have been the... I don't know which study it was, um, but but at least the Raison study, they said, the success of allocation binding was not ex uh, not assessed, but Rucker, not talking about Raison, said essentially that there was um, a study where 90% of the subjects and over 90% of the therapists were able to guess correctly which intervention was given, right? The, this yeah. is not a study you can hide. Yeah. But he makes the case that there's an expectancy effect, right? And he talked about this, and I thought this was fascinating. The idea that there's this inflated expectation. Psilocybin cures everything. And then there is the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> I thought this was fascinating. Love the words people use. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently this is a model for technology, maybe. And then there is the uh, slope of enlightenment and the plateau of productivity, where we get to some sort of middle ground where we actually find what psilocybin may treat and how it, its limitations and benefits in the sense of, does it really have an NNT better than SSRIs, right? Is it really a step forward compared to things like RTMS or SAINT? Is it truly a step forward? 
uh, for some people do we have genetics that help us know where to make this the most productive application. And I thought that was interesting. And I think that at the same time, Rucker's making the argument that if you're truly unblinded, then your expectation would be higher and, and maybe that uh, expectation helps have a better outcome. So in your tobacco study, I, I just think it's unreal that at two and a half years, two-thirds of the people on the intervention are still, still abstinent. Yeah. abstinent. And I don't know what the uh, placebo arm was, but my guess was about 10% to 20% mm -hmm. at most. Yeah. And so your NNTs are two to three. That's a great NNT, right? Mm -hmm. Three to four, which is where your SSRIs start to fall into. Uh, closer to four, I mean, you round <laughs> up, right, uh, with NNTs. But at four, that's, that's uh, we consider that to be a good treatment yeah. for some improvement Right, and an NNT of what, uh, 17 goes into 100, what, five to seven to six times, something like that. I think NNTs of recovery are higher, 30%, it's about 15%, sorry. So it's about uh, 15 goes into 100, how many times? Six, seven times almost. So it's an NNT of seven for recovery uh, with both the Raison article and with SSRIs generally overall. So, so anyway. Uh, cessation of tobacco, though, has been that's yeah, that's awesome. That's the deathbed of any medication, right? Trying to get people to stop smoking. Yeah. Um, any comments or thoughts on on Rucker's uh, article about challenges with blinding, expectations, how people can have hope? Anything that you want to add to that discussion? Um, I don't think so. I think we've anything I would say. I think we've covered previously. So okay. agreed. Um, what have I not asked you about? either of you that you still feel like we should cover? Honestly, I feel like the only other study that I found interesting was this Kavana study specifically about microdosing. So they recruited people who were already planning on starting their own microdosing protocol. Um, and Like individuals who are planning on using without... Yes, without any oversight or whatever. Uh, so, okay, I, I, that's a... <laughs> keep going. <laughs> um, Anyway, so they gave them 0.5 grams of dried mushroom material. Don't know the composition of what that means, but they found overall there was a subjective positive impact on a lot of things. But the one interesting thing I thought, you know, they gave them different tasks to do, and they saw a slight trend downward of impairment in cognitive tasks with this microdose. A trend down, like worsening of cognitive Worse, tasks? Like not significant, but they, both the patients and observers was like, oh yeah, this is a little harder. Interesting. Well, I, I, and I think that makes some sort of sense because I think you're loosening the world up in your brain. So that makes some sense yeah. generally with the way they're looking at this as being positive. I know that a minute ago, Erin just about broke a gasket. Uh, She's dying to talk. Dying. Yes. You've got one Chomping minute. At the bit. You have one minute. Okay, I really wasn't going to talk on this podcast. So I was trying really hard. She's back. But 50 seconds. I have one quick thought. Okay, so it was about the blinding thing. I was thinking about how there's all those like stories about how like you can give someone non-alcoholic alcohol, but if you tell them their beer has alcohol in it, they're going to act a little bit drunker. They're going to feel a little bit tipsy. And so I was wondering if that's part of how they hoped that would go. Like they're telling you, oh, you might be taking mushrooms right now. And they were thinking... 
So that's the Similar placebo concept. effect subtract out, right? When you truly have no ability to know. But this is this is somewhat different with expectancy when you can unblind yourself, I think. Mm-hmm. And so you expect to know a difference. And, and, and maybe there's not a difference between expectancy and placebo results, but maybe there is. I, I was left very fascinated by the discussion and, and who knows, maybe it'll be a topic that comes up again with other medical students. Yeah, I know we had a, a nice little chat about that in the other room where we were kind of trying to figure that out as well yeah, before I think we came in here. I'm good, I'm done. <laughs> Aaron's been cut off. <laughs> Back to your room. Okay. All right. <laughs> so uh, major take homes. Aaron, go ahead and throw in. What's your take home from the podcast? That I don't know how to stop talking. that I really earned that nickname Um, no I just found it really interesting and I found it really interesting um, how there's such broad types of research on this it reminded me of the ketamine thing where people are like you can use this for so many different things Um, and I just think it's really interesting to see how like where typically recreational drug type things are going in terms of therapeutic uses be interesting to see where it ends up as opposed to the shamanic uh, approach, which I think has led us to this point. We'll see where the data takes us. Jared. Yeah, um, kind of my big take home is just, I think it's kind of exciting to see that we're trying different avenues. I know with uh, typical treatment for depression, the more uh, medication you try, the less likely you are to have relief. Uh, so it's kind of nice to maybe try a different route to see if we can help those people uh, maybe uh, treatment resistant. Uh, so it's nice to see, kind of looking into it and trying to answer some of those questions you brought up earlier, like what happens when you give someone that, so. I want to make sure I understood what you just said, because I, th- I think I did, but I may not have. I think you're referencing the idea that if you give somebody an SSRI, they have roughly, uh, it, it's essentially an NNT of four, right? Yeah. Uh, for every four people to walk through your office, one of those four will have improvement of symptoms because of the medication and about one in seven will recover because of that medication. Now, more, more people get well, we don't get you know, the placebo effect, natural change in the illness and so forth, right? But that's your actual NNT, that's your hard data. Mm-hmm. But once you have had one trial of a medication not be helpful for treatment of depression, the odds of a second medication helping you drop phenomenally to like 10%, it's some yeah. really minuscule number. And I think uh, like the TMAP, the Texas, um, study that was done looked at, well, what if we follow up with this? Do we have better outcomes? If we follow up with this, do we have better outcomes? And overall, any medication choice seems to have about the same kind of effect. And every time you try a second one, that percentage goes down. Is that what you were referring to? Yeah, so. Oh, good. Yeah. I got it right then. <laughs> you were gonna add more. Um, no, just that, you know, I'm happy that you know, we're kind of using that evidence-based medicine to try to bring in something that was traditionally just unregulated and see if we can uh, use it for a therapeutic benefit. It's it's fascinating to me that we're in serotonin again. I know that we had a, a podcast recently with David I Work Alone Brown, <laughs> Dr. David I Work Alone Brown, uh, who, who tackled the article about the serotonin hypothesis as false, right? We talked about all the research that goes into that, but here we are back in serotonin in the same mix of monoamines again, mm-hmm. but maybe with a different mixture and maybe in a different approach with somewhat different outcomes. So. I'm fascinated by it and I'm always hoping that we have better treatments that help more people become functional again. What's your take home, Weston? My take home is that there's still a lot of work to be done with regards to psychiatry research. Obviously, we knew that, but with all of these emerging 
um, substances, technologies. I just think it's an exciting time to be going into psychiatry and I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, the potential use that this has um, in the field. Um, as someone who's interested in neuromodulation and that, you know, interventional psychiatry, I think this has the potential to do a lot of good. Very cool. I don't know that I have anything more to add. Except for BDNF did show up. <laughs> and uh, the expectancy effect, I think that might pop yeah. up again in the future. Interesting stuff. Great podcast. Very much enjoyed it. On that note, team, team out. out.